Jim McGrath. Jim, thank you for joining me. Now, I'm really looking forward to this because we're going to be talking all things timeful, aren't we? And uh, it'll be good for me, especially to brush up on my skills. But before we get into that, I'd like to know how you got into racing, as I did read that you wanted to start off being a jockey. Was that right? Yeah, um, I have absolutely no background in racing. My my father was in the RAF. My mum was work part time uh, to supplement you know, the, the family, basically. Um, and I lived all over the country um, when I was little because my dad was posted often. But from when we came back from a spell in Germany, we went to see my mum's parents because she hadn't seen them for um, two years um, and they lived in Scotland. And during that time, it was 1963, and it was Grand National Weekend. And um, I was, me and my brothers were farmed out to various relatives, and I was staying with my mum's youngest sister. She said it's Grand National Day. Everyone's going to have a horse, and we're going up to Grandad's to watch it. So you've got, I'll, I'll read the names out, and you stop when we get to a name. So I was seven at this point, and she said 40 secrets, and I said, I want that one, which fell. Um, but we watched that race age seven and even though I'd, I'd never seen a race never heard about racing i don't know what it was something grabbed me and i wanted it, it really fascinated me so the next year i watched the grand national again uh, and a horse called freddie trained in scotland finished second and he finished second the following year so like a football fan i started following freddie every time he ran and that's how i became interested in racing so from then did you get riding lessons or maybe you know visit yards and things i know you, you've asked you know i wanted to be a jockey well i used to ride the side of the armchair as a little boy and I, um it, it was difficult because we lived on ref camps until i was 14. um i did have one or two riding lessons yeah it's interesting uh, you asked that i did but basically um i wrote away for a pre-apprentice trial because the fact that you've never ridden i'm not saying it's not a help obviously it, it can be a huge help but quite a lot of trainers, old fashioned trainers, maybe more, don't like you to learn riding somewhere else because you might learn bad habits and they'd rather teach you from scratch. So I, I had a handful of lessons and thought I could ride. But of course, when you get to a yard and you're reasonably quickly dealing even with quiet horses, thoroughbreds, big ones. I mean, they're a totally different kettle of fish. So in 1970, I had a pre-apprentice trial uh, with a leading trainer um, who was based in Whitsbury called Bill Marshall. Um, and I spent about six weeks there in the summer. And at the end of it, I mean, it's the first time I'd ever been away from from home. I mean, it's quite an eye-opening experience. You know, I was living in a hostel for six weeks, uh, having sort of never been away. The head lad was very good to me. He said, look, you said you've done some exams at school. He said, if you were my son, he said, you've just about learned to ride in the time you're here and you work okay. He said, you can stay. You'll be, you know, you'll be fine as a stable lad. But if you were my son and you passed any exams, stay on at school. So at the time I was disappointed. But as it turned out, it, it was very sound advice. So I continued my love of racing. Um, I did two O-levels. Um, and when I'd finished those, I wrote to Timeform for a job. And it just so happened they'd won right at the very bottom in 1974, which really involved most of the day putting glue on the card that we stuck up and made race cards. So I started right at the bottom. And um, how did I get the job? Because I think you asked that in one of your questions later on. You had they give you a racing test, and you have to get a percentage. So is it like a quiz kind of thing? 
Yeah, it lasted an hour. Now, there were all general things about racing. And if you think about it, Hannah, you may have somebody that rides really well and knows a lot about horses. You may have had somebody with um, a, a background in um, the pedigree industry and they knew all about the pedigrees. But this was about everything. What did the flags, which we don't have anymore at race courses, what do they all mean? Um, can you name me three jump stallions, leading jumps at three leading flat stallions? Um, what's the average weight of a flat jack? All those sort of things. And I did okay. I got quite a lot of them wrong, but quite a lot of them right too. I was about average. So I got enough to get in, um, but there wasn't a smart job there and I wasn't ready for it uh, anyway. So uh, you started right at the bottom, which was in the old days at Timeform, the race cards that you see on sale, a bit like any race card really, you see on sale, we used to put together um, at the offices and they had to be manually, the proof that was printed from, stuck together. So I stuck the numbers on and then the names on and then the jockeys on. It was it, it was very difficult. You know, you said that you didn't know much. Well, you thought you didn't. You thought you knew a lot until you went to Timeform. What's the first thing they, that you learned when you got there? Basics yeah. uh, such, such as, I mean, you, you go racing, Hannah, and you pick up a race card and you've got, um, you see numbers, let's say 20 runner race, numbers one to 20. You see um, the top weights, nine, 10, and the bottom weights, seven, 12. But you learn things almost the first day you're there while you're doing a basic job like I was doing, that the weights are raised at, at the 48 hour stage or the overnight stage, if it's 24 hour declarations. Um, you know, I don't know if you know what the, the, the top weight in most handicaps is over jumps. Uh, you know, you learn little basic things that then, then they don't mean much in the grand scheme of things, but they're small details that form part of the whole. So j just starting off while you're putting the glue on. Oh, oh, they allocate the numbers then, do they? Why don't they allocate the five day stage? Well, there can be 90, 90 decks at the five day stage. You don't want a number one till 90. When there's 12 left or 14 left at the final declaration stage, we'll number them 1 to 14. So we don't go 1, 7, 39, 54, et cetera, et cetera. It might seem all into inconsequential detail, but it was something I'd never thought of. So it was how you arrive at some of the, the things that we all take for granted. If someone was to say, what is Timeform, how, do you, how would you describe it? Well, Timeform was an organisation founded by Phil Ball. Um, who was um, originally a maths teacher from Pontefract, which is probably 25 miles from where he based it um, in, in Halifax, West Yorkshire. And Phil Ball was always interested in backing horses, um, but he didn't believe in a lot of the myths that people said, you know, like, oh, a good big horse will always beat a good little horse. Rubbish. He was a mathematician. If you like, he was more about science. Now, racing isn't an exact science, but it, 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 it's not inexact either. It's not approximate. It's, it's somewhere in between being exact and approximate. It lies in the middle of those two. And he wanted to take a lot of the myths out of it. So he started analysing horses on time. And with a guy called Dick Whitford, who used to be um, a, an admiral in the Navy and was also interested in racing, they formed the company. Phil Ball worked on the time aspect of it and Dick Whitford worked on the form aspect of it. And together they came up with um, a scale. So um, it was a, a scale of naught to 140, right? Mm -hmm. Naught in, in, in broad terms means no ability. 
nothing, useless. No, you haven't got any ability whatsoever. 140 uh, is, is superlative merit. Now, why not to 140? Now, if you think about it logically, 140 is 10 stone, which used to be the highest weight ever allocated in a handicap. It's not now, but that's how it started. So basically, horses got ratings in between and they equate to um, levels on that scale. So a horse rated 100 is, is, is 40 pounds less than 10 stone. Um, a horse rated uh, 80 is 60 pounds less than 10 stone. So if we pick, pick one, say, at 126 and top weights one four, or, or, or the, the highest rating you can attain is 140, one at 126 will have nine stone, 14 pounds left less and so forth a rating is merely a way of expressing a horse's ability so you might say to me i've got a group horse i own a group horse and i say to you hannah define that well you say to me well it's, it's got a rating of 70 and i go hannah you're mad it can't be a group horse with a rating of 70 it would need to have a rating of a minimum a listed group three horse, a minimum of 95, 95 and higher. Um, these, are, these are approximations. So really all a rating is, is a way of expressing a horse's ability in a figure. Now, if you follow that logically, if you've got lots of horses with figures, you can fit them in a handicap. So fitting them in a handicap means in theory, they should all finish in a straight line. So if your horse is rated 90 and my horse is rated 100, my horse and your horse for them to finish in a in a in a dead heat in theory they have to they have to race at 10 pounds i have my horse has to give your horse 10 pounds in in that case in a handicap they should finish together now you might say well why don't they always well i'll go well my horse is better on firm ground and your horse is better on soft ground. So all those little factors, or you might say, well, my horse is drawn um, in a low stall and yours is right on the outside in a high stall. So the reason handicapping doesn't work out to follow the theory is because of all these slight variables. And that's why in racing, when you're looking at form, you can be the best at the figures uh, and you can also know about the draw, but you've got to have an open mind about all these little factors that come in and you won't learn it overnight. You know, you've got to follow it every day. When they were coming together with this idea for time form, how long did it take for them to kind of perfect it? So, you know, you said it was two men, wasn't it? And they added it. They, one was mathematician um, and then one did the form. How long did it take for them to get a very a good um, structure for people to follow? That's a very good question. And I don't know the real answer to it. I can't give you a specific answer, but I mean, Timeform was officially founded in 1948, um, but it was going in um, one shape or another or um, with Mr. Bull's own uh, speed figures from at least uh, eight, 10 years before that. But it took a long time to develop. And then when did it become a well-known company? Not until the early 60s. So it was a long time in the making. Because it's not just time form, is there? There's loads of other data analysis for form, isn't there? The time form is, or, or was, well, I don't know why I say was. Time form is um, a, a way of fitting horses together that Phil Ball and Dick Whitford 
um, uh, formulated. When the Racing Post started in the mid 80s, one of its founding members was a man called Graham Rock, who used to work at Timeform with me. Sadly, he, he died relatively young, Graham. Um, and he also, when he was at Timeform, he specifically worked for Phil Ball. So he adopted that, the same sort of scale for the Racing Post, though they used it. And then eventually, in the, in the mid-80s as well, uh, the, uh, the Jockey Club, which then became BHA and BHB, they adopted it too. And you'll find that um, most handicaps around the world are run, if not identically, in a similar way. Because it, it's a simple way of actually putting them together. Throughout the world, then, everyone is going by the same structure of form. The same principles, yeah. That are similar structures. Okay, so it doesn't differ depending on what country you are. Because I always wondered, you know, does it, does it make a difference if a horse is bred in, say, I don't know, Australia to Britain? Is, is there a difference, in, especially with climate and things like that? That's why I wondered if the form um, structure would be different. It, it, that, that's a really good question. It's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, when I started at Timeform, international racing that you take for granted was, un, was unheard of. You know, in 65, a couple of American horses came over to run in the arc. And you've probably read about a wonderful horse called Far Lap who went to America. But they they were few and far between. Um, Val Marino was a very good horse in Australia who came and ran in the arc in the 70s. But the idea that they flew around the world like William Haggis has, has just done with a Deb, um, uh, and that happens um, quite a number of times a season now ju just didn't happen so how did they fit them together probably not very well initially um but now if you go on to the bha site which as i said to you uses a similar structure to time form it's not exactly the same but it's similar you will find that they have a weight for age system that adopts uh, and, and works with Australian or Southern Hemisphere horses as well. The same for Japan, the same for America, the same even for France. Now, are they as accurate? Are all those handicaps, can you just fit them together like they're a jigsaw? Um, probably not as carefully as that, but it, equally, it works better than you might imagine. As I said to you, racing's not exact, but it's approximate. So... Without, uh, without being rude here or, or starting to laugh, some, when I go on to this um, thing, uh, th this strand of what I feel is so important about racing, people laugh, but it's logic if you think about it. Mm. Racing is governed by a breeding season. People say, oh, the season starts in March with the Lincoln. Well, it does, the, re the, the horse racing does, but the whole season starts um, with, with the breeding season, which starts on February the 14th and runs for six months. And then it starts in Australia on August, uh, the middle of August, and runs for, for, for six months there. Now, the average gestation period or pregnancy period for a, a thoroughbred broodmare is 11 months and one day. So horses are covered in that period in, in the Northern Hemisphere from February the 14th onwards, right? Um, a six month period and then the mayor carries them for 11 months so they're produced the following year we don't actually want foals turning up on Christmas day the 25th of December or the 26th or the 27th or etc etc because as you know horses have their birthdays on the 1st of January they become one otherwise a horse five days old would become one if you see what I mean yeah, yeah. now 
if you think about it, and this is why I don't want you to laugh, I'm not being rude, I'd say this to loads of people. Do you know when your mum and dad went to bed to produce you? I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first person that's ever answered like that, but anyway, most people don't. Mm -hmm. but, but with thoroughbreds, to be thoroughbreds, they have got to have registered thoroughbred records of eight generations of thoroughbred parentage. So that means you could trace if you wanted to, if you rang Weatherby's, the jockey club secretaries, said who you were, what you were doing, it's part of your project, they could show you the date, the stud in question would or could even tell you the time mm -hmm. of, of day that that union uh, took place to produce the horse that you now own and they can go back a minimum of eight generations. And if you think about Frankel, we can trace his parentage back 25 generations plus. We know exactly his, his heritage. We don't know all the times, but 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 we will do that. We, we will know the times and dates for the last eight of them. So if you think, why is that important? Racehorses are traceable because they're far more streamlined than humans. Most of us are the product of random mating. That's why we vary in size. But if you go racing tomorrow and you go and watch the two-year-olds in a paddock, yeah, some will be that much bigger than the others. But basically, horses weighing 450 kilos, because they're, they're young horses, and when they're, when they're older, they weigh more than that, obviously. They, they vary in size by a few inches. Yeah, you'll, you'll go to the races and you'll see someone a foot taller than you, a foot shorter than you. And that's because of the way they're mated. So they are far more traceable than you think. So to go back to that weight for age scale and Southern Hemisphere, Australia and things like that, they're produced the same way over there. So even though the climate's different, which you mentioned, and if you want a generalisation, how do they differ Australian horses? Their sprinters are bigger and stronger as a generalisation. And some might say a lot of them are faster as well, but that we won't get into that at the minute. But basically, they're, they're simple genetic facts. And ultimately, racing horses are a lot more traceable than you uh, and understandable than you might think. <laughs>after they finish racing, combining breeding and ratings, how does that work? Do you have to have a particular horse with a particular rating to then pair with another horse with a particular rating? That's good, they're good questions. Um, it's not something I would have thought of asking, but yeah, you're right. Let's say you've set your heart on, you've won, you've won the lottery and you've set your heart on, oh, um, mum's got, mum's got a mare that won a race over hurdles, but I want to send it to Galileo. And Coolmore will go, well, you can have a Galileo nomination for 300,000 euros, Hannah, but but uh, I'm afraid you can't send that mare to it. We only take group winners to Galileo or, or listed or better winners. So if you've got a really good stallion, the stallion owners, yes, they want your business, but they also want to protect their stallion. And they'd say, well, we don't want that moderate horse that you've got to, to be going to Galileo. Why don't you try this one? And that's that's the way it sort of works. Now, if you owned it, if you owned Enable, for example, um, and said, "Oh, I'd like in this is a silly a silly theory, but I'd like Enable to go to Galileo," they'd want they'd want Enable to go to Galileo so much. I say, "Oh, Hannah, that's so kind of you. I tell you what, you can. We, we this will be a two year contract. 
you can have year one and we'll have year two. So you can have the progeny of year one and, and we'll have the progeny of year two. That, that's called fold sharing. So quite a lot of studs operate in, in loosely like that. So, for example, say you've got your um, you've got your two horses um, and you want your mare to go off to this really good stallion. The mare's um, retired. They're not as great as they could be. However, down further up the line, they had really good breeding and potential. Can yep. this still be a possibility? Because they might think this mare wasn't great. However, going up the, the ladder, let's say, they have potential that might trickle through. Is that? Yeah, that's, 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 that happens often. You get a mare that's unraced from a really good stud. Why was she unraced? She might have had a bad injury. The trainer might have had a virus that year. The horses didn't run or she ran once and she was disappointing uh, or she ran once and she maybe did something like uh, she, she got an injury that wasn't really serious, but it was time consuming. So, you know, run once doesn't look any good, but well-bred. Yes, yes, absolutely. The, um, I don't think any, uh, any clever breeder would refuse that a, a mare like that. No. And that's why then the breeding history is so important. So they can look back. Pedigree is important for everybody because, uh, as we explained earlier, it's got to have registered thoroughbred parentage. But because most people, not everybody, but most people who follow racing and, and probably most Saturday punters that bet on racing, they know a little bit about it. I'm not saying they study it or as keen on it as you might be or I've always been. But they, they know, for example, that uh, Nathaniel is going to get horses that largely stay well um, and that Kodiak is going to get horses that, that, that sprint really well. They're fast. They, they know a lot of them know basics. And because you know basics, you understand a little bit more about the horses. Because if the horses don't have a pedigree, they can't be thoroughbreds. Therefore, if the pedigree is part of them and influences how far they're going to run in a lot of cases or how fast or slow they are, it's important to everybody, whether you're just a punter, a breeder, uh, someone that studies form, you've, you've got to be cognizant of, of some of it. So let's say now we have our foal. Yep. And I just want to talk about the process of um, it getting its rating. So it has to, well, how old is it when a racehorse is broken? Is it two? Um, most, most of them, not all of them, uh, will be broken as yearlings, oh. um, one, one year old. Um, and, you know, that's a process that, that generally, if the horse is straightforward, will take a couple of months. And if you think about it logically again, um, if the horse has been through a sale ring, it's been to a sale before that, it will have had, it will have learned to walk in hand with a groom, to turn right and to turn left. It won't have had a bridle on it. Um, and a bit in its mouth, but it will have had a head collar on and have been uh, made to walk up and down and, and, and get used to people and noise and things like that. Um, so um, so it, its muscles will have been slightly developed. So then you start to break it, which takes about probably about two months before you start to ride them away. Okay. And then they go to their trainers. And I think someone like Mark Johnson would say that he starts by well, they just walk and trot to start with them. When they start to go a little bit faster, they do a furlong for three or four weeks and then two furlongs and then three furlongs. 
And then maybe by the end of January, some of the sharper ones with trainers with quite a lot of two-year-olds, they'll start putting them upsides and going a little bit. But I doubt, I, I don't know for certain, but I doubt they go five furlongs, even though eventually they're going to run five. They, you know, they'll be going really sharp for three um, and so forth. The ones with more backward pedigrees, bigger, slightly different shape, you wouldn't force them because they're not ready for it. Hmm. So please, can you just explain the process then from after the breaking period to then leading up to how they get their ratings? Well, they have to run to get a rating. So what is a, what is a rating? A rating is a, a way and it it's a way of expressing a horse's ability. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, it's, it's not good enough for you to say to me, I've got a group. I've got a group mare. The first thing I'm going to say is what's it rated? And then I could, if you said to me it was 100, I said, oh, well, well you probably have, yeah. Um, so uh, what's the best way to, to explain this? Well, time, time, time form will assess them straight away. But so uh, the official handicappers, the BHA handicappers, don't make mistakes. They generally like to see a horse last year because of COVID and there wasn't as much time to, for the season. They, they said they'd give most horses a rating after two runs. So um, they have to have either won a race. Um, in the past, it always used to be at least three runs. But if you've won a race um, and run a couple of times, you can get a mark. If you've run once in some instances, you can get a run. But generally, the old-fashioned way was, was three runs. It's now two. As I sit here now, I haven't checked whether that's changed. I should have done. So let's say... Um, Time form, we're going to put a race on the first race of the two-year-old race of the season, which tra traditionally is called the Brocklesby Stakes. Yeah. It's the first two-year-old race run at the, the Lincoln meeting. So I think it was eight, eight, it might have been seven. Seven or eight horses ran in this race, right? They'd never run before and they crossed the line and immediately someone at time form gives the winner a rating. And let's say, and this will be somewhere near right, Let's say he, he gave that winner a rating of 80, which would be quite good. How has he done it? Well, the easy way is to go back and look at what the last five, 10 Brocklesby winners were rated from, from previous years, average them all out and put that figure on. And it won't be far away doing that because he will know, he's seen all those Brocklesby's, uh, he will know from hindsight whether those ratings on those Brocklesby winners are right and go, well, this looked an average field. I've got to get a starting point. So I'm going to put 80 on the winner. Now, let's say that you owned the third horse in that Brocklesby, right? And it was beaten over five furlongs and it was beaten a total of three lengths by the winner. So your horse finished third in the Brocklesby, right? Beaten three lengths. This is what we call, I made this when I was um, 1974, when I first went to time form, and it's a weight for distance beaten table. So over five furlongs. What is it? Is oh, sorry, I couldn't see it. What is it? A sheet? It's just a sheet of paper. Oh. And you'll find it in lots of books. Mm -hmm. um, wait, just put weight for distance table in horse racing. Over five furlongs, three lengths equates to nine pounds. So that's the scale we use for every length beaten over five furlongs. We use three pounds. Your horse was beaten three lengths. So three threes equal nine. So the winner's rated 80 and you're rated therefore? 71. So your horse is rated 71. 
So if you factor in that uh, I really don't want to lose you now and just tell me this is too much in this. Okay. We have what we call a weight for age table. Right. If you were to run two-year-olds against three-year-olds against four-year-olds in March, you would have to give them, the, 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 the four-year-old would have to give the three-year-old some weight and the four-year-old would have to give your little baby a lot of weight because that is the scale that was drawn up many, many years ago by a man called Admiral Rouse to make them raceable together, to fit them together, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that scale from March through to December reduces. Now, think about it. You own a little baby, mm -hmm. a two-year-old. Why would it reduce? Because of the way he's growing. So perhaps yes. the muscles and structures not quite as developed. Ab absolutely. So he, the horse grows and it's considered, they're not actually fully mature by four. A lot of them aren't, but they're considered that, that that runs out in a lot of cases other than over very long distances. So from March, it would reduce by about two pounds every fortnight because that is the average development of the horses. So if we think a horse rate is 71 in March, and it goes down four pounds every month. Are you with me? Well, it is because it's getting older, it would go down. If it's getting older. Right. In theory, if a horse is rated 71 in March and it strengthens to the extent I've said, what should it be rated at the end of April? So it would be, so four, eight, two, four lots of four. 71 and four. Uh, 71 and four. Yeah. 75. So that's its rate of progress. So by the end of May, it will be 79 because they're developing. They're getting that's the theory behind it. Now, as you know, it doesn't always work out like that because some get injured. Um, some are tiny and they were ready early on and there's no development in them, etc., etc., etc. There's theory and there's practice in horse racing. And I probably haven't explained that very well, but you, you have to start. And one way to start with a race is, oh, I'd, ordinarily I do that. But this race has been run for 70 or 80 years and probably longer than that but i know i can look at the last 10 and they were all average fields and that winner was rated 80 so i'm going to stick 80 on the brocklesby and start from there and see how we go and that literally in in some shape or form is how you start so is that why a lot of people compare horses to perhaps one from the year before and things they always um compare their rating perhaps to what this horse is running like now and in certain races yeah, yeah. The, the way racing is set up, because new horses come at the same time every year, so it's a process that repeats itself every year, and it's the same with the new additions, the new horses, new stallions going to stud and the new broodmares going to stud, but they're just added to the pool that are already there. You know, it's, it's a cycle, it repeats itself. So what you just described is perfectly logical. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we'll say in June, oh, this year's three-year-olds aren't as good as last year's three-year-olds. Now, maybe the ones that ran in the derby this year aren't as good as the ones as last year's derby. Maybe they're not. But as a generalisation, at the end of the year, there won't be that much between them. Mm. So ratings change slightly every month. 
yeah. from when they're babies because I always wondered if it was every race or so the so time form ratings are then done on their ability body and age the time for the time form ratings come about after the race the situation I described to you of a horse improving uh, with the weight for age scale about four pounds that's theory if we take six months six fours of 24 um, a horse that's genuinely about uh, low 70s uh, at the start of March in theory could be low to mid 90s by the end of the season that's its potential provided it it runs regularly and it improves regularly that's how the scale's set up but horses, horses' ratings, they don't have to run and they're changed. Because let's say let's say that the, the handicapper doing that Brocklesby had a rush of blood and said, oh, I'm going to put 95 on that this year. And immediately, if I'd been working at time form, I know my boss had come, have come down and said, what's this on the Brocklesby winner? Have you got something to back this up? That, that you know, the, the race average says it's 80. You've said 95. That's a very high rating. Now... Over the next few weeks, the horses from that race will have run, will go and run, and the handicapper will either be proved correct or incorrect. And if he's incorrect and he gets two or three run that very quickly makes that ninety-five look silly, he'll pull all the horses in the race down because he knows he got it too high. Remember, horses, and this might seem as I'm nitpicking, horses don't run to ratings. Handicappers say they do. It's a, it's a man's or a woman's impression of what a horse has done. It's not an actual thing. Yeah. How would you describe the difference between a time form rating and a handicap mark? In principle, they're the same thing, but they're, they're arrived at slightly differently. There won't be huge variables in them. Um, it's so difficult to explain to you without getting into a really complicated use of, uh, of that scale that we just used. Mm -hmm. um, there, are, there are variables. Rem remember, Timeform, Timeform had, had two purposes as a, as a handicap publication. Firstly, uh, Phil Ball uh, developed the system. And at the end of the year, um, he produced an annual right uh, have you seen them the black the time, form, the time form racehorses books is it the black books no oh. um i'll go get you if you bear with me 20 seconds i'll go and get you okay. one. you see how thick that is oh oh is that in one year yeah that that is all the horses that ran in england in in uh, 2019 sorry can you see it uh, just up a bit yeah all horses that ran in 2019 in one year, plus all the best horses from England, Ireland and France. Oh, wow. So when the season finishes in the first week in November, all the people that work on the flat in time form um, would sit down and sort all the good ones out and write essays about them. So all the ones that get essays are the best ones. So that's all about Magna Grecia, for example. The you two pages. The two pages? No, it's about five pages. I, I can just show you two at the minute. Um, so they get that. They get an extended um, uh, an, an extended essay about them. The others just get small comments, like um, the first one there is about six lines, just summarises it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, the rating in that 
it's worked, it's re-handicapped, the handicappers all go through their work again and say, no, I'll pull that down four pounds, uh, I'll push this one up three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they arrive at a final rating, it's master rating. Timeform also exists to find a betting angle for punters. And if they, if they see horses that they want you to be interested in, they'll add pounds to their ratings um, because they've won easily or they were unlucky in running. Um, so whereas in most cases, the BHA handicap mark reflects what they think they've done on the track, sometimes a time form handicap mark has been inflated to reflect not just what they've done on the track, what they think they might do next time. Was that part of your job then, where you had to do the write-ups each year at time yeah. form? Yeah, I was, uh, the, the way time form worked, you were a team. I, I was the eyes, if it was me doing the report, there were four of us. I was, I, I, the four of us were the, were the eyes for the company. Then we had handicappers, and then we had comment writers that took all our work, the reporter's work, um, and they go through it and say, yeah, we think Jim's right about most of that there and we'll write it up accordingly. Or once or twice a week, Jim, we, we don't we don't agree with this. You know, we've looked through it all and we think we're not going to take the same view as you have over this rating for X, Y and Z. And that's their job, because ultimately we're producing something for people to buy. It's not whether it suits Jim McGrath or the comment writer or the handicapper. We all married our work together for the benefit of a customer. And would you perhaps ask one of your colleagues their opinion too on a horse that you were writing up on? Would you say, what do you think? Just... Yeah, very much so. Oh, okay. And then you'd all work together. So when you said, you know, your boss would come over sometimes and maybe you'd say, have you got evidence to back this up? What if there was a case where you've um, given a rating to a horse and no one else agreed? Would you then have to uh, change your write-up and rating for this horse? Not if I was experienced and I really stood my ground and said, look, there's this, this and this that you're not thinking about. Now, in the case where ratings are high, I mean, I gave you a, uh, they're all hypothetical examples about that Brocklesby winner being 95, which is very high for the time of year. On the track, I might have said it's 80 and I get back to the office and he says it's 95. And he said, he might say to me, well, have you seen the time figure yet? Now, an analysis of times, which... I really think I'll fry your head if I go into it. An analysis of times is another way of looking at horses. And he might turn around and say, well, there's compelling evidence on the clock that this horse, which won well, is significantly better than an average Brocklesby winner. And because of that, that's the way we're going. And I go, well, if you've got compelling evidence, fine. It's the customer we're interested in, not, not, not my ego or your ego. We're working for someone else principally. Do jockeys know all about, um, obviously they know what time bomb is, but they, do they know all the details like you would? Are they taught that? No, they're not taught it. Um, a, a lot of jockeys are very sharp on form, uh, very sharp on pedigrees. Um, you'll find the likes of Frankie de Tory and the senior riders, probably even William Buick now, um, that ride for the big stables have ridden the dams, the, the, the mothers of these horses or the sires of them, the stallions, and they can see characteristics, uh, you know, and they get off and the really sharp ones, they do now. In part three, 
by asking Jim what his advice would be to someone who wanted to start betting. If you're going racing as a bit of fun, <laughs> treat it as a bit of fun. Bet in the smallest stakes possible, two pounds on the tote. Uh, and I really mean that. Um, and follow your own instincts. If if you want to if you want to bet seriously or, or you're looking to back horses uh, in any sort of a serious manner, you've got to work at it. Mm. Um, otherwise, you might as well just take not so much the pin approach, but you might you might as well take the fun approach. Um, and I tell you what, really, it, it bothers me sometimes. And I, I'm not picking out between the sexes. Um, because I actually had a row with a lady over this. I did a survey for the BHA once uh, and I spoke to one of the reps at William Hill and in 2000 when foot and mouth came and there was no racing for months, they actually, um, people used to bet on the Irish lottery because it fewer numbers and you could um, win small amounts. And women really liked that because the, the bookmakers or Hills found women are not greedy punters, blokes are, Bloke, especially if they're with their mates. And, you know, you see like a group of half a dozen lads go to the races and they all have to have 20 quid on. They, they couldn't possibly have two pounds on, could they? Because they, they look small in the eye of their friends. So they all back six losers each. They've all lost 120 quid. They've all paid to get in. They've all had a few drinks. It's suddenly a very expensive day. If you don't know about it and you're going for fun, please just treat it as fun. So I, I can't really answer if you go now and again or i just want to bet in the grand national um i mean the, the, there's an old statistic that 58 percent of the races on the flat are won by the first or second favorites um you could say well if you go eight ten times a year and you tended to stick with the first and second favorite on the flat that you've got more chance of getting a return than, than if you're just sticking a pin in there might be something in that, but it's a difficult thing to take lightly. And it is seriously something I don't like when people ask me, have you got a tip? I go, if I've had a bet, I'll go, I'll tell you what I've backed, but I haven't got a tip. I'm not telling you to back it. I'm saying, this is what I've backed. If you want to back it, it's up to you. Because unfortunately people think, you know, a lot more than everybody else. And you might know a lot more, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to tip a lot more winners. And if someone wanted to follow in your footsteps and work at Timeform, how would they go about doing this? Um, same as I did, write for an interview um, and outline where you are with your own education. Have you got a, you know, you don't have to be a boffin, but if you've got a decent education, that obviously helps because it gives them more options with you. If you, uh, I didn't have a university degree. I wasn't clever enough to go to university or even wanted to, if I had been, I wanted to get on and work in racing. But if you've got a university degree and you, you can write it, it, it does help. Um, but if you've got a keen interest in form, say so. And it, I don't know if it's different now, but certainly when I was there, even if we didn't have jobs um, available, we wanted people on file that were good that we could call up at short notice if it came. So, you know, in my time, I interviewed quite a lot of people that say, look, there's no job at the minute, but you can come along and we'll put you on file. And if you're good, we'll put you on file. Uh, and as soon as a job becomes available, we'll come back and let you know. We got a lot of people like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's no point being. Um, I, <laughs> this is the truth. I remember somebody came for um, a job in IT. Now it said on it, um, knowledge of racing not essential but helpful. 
So you didn't have to know anything about racing, but, you know, it was obviously a plus if you did, I suppose. Anyway, this is a young fella, perfectly nice, turned up, smartly dressed. And I said at the end, it, you know, he answered all the general questions, not about racing, about IT, not that I knew, knew much, but that I'd been told to ask. And I said, do you know anything about racing? Oh, yeah, yeah, I follow it every Saturday. And I said, so if I said to you, is Frankie de Tori a trainer or a jockey? What would you say to me? He said, oh, he's a trainer. So I said, I don't have to ask you one more thing about racing. You just told me with one answer that you know absolutely nothing about racing. Now, it doesn't matter with regard to this job, but it should be a lesson for you. Don't tell fibs at interviews. Mm. <laughs> because Frankie de Tori is probably the best known person in racing. Yeah. Uh, over the last 10 or 15 years and you said he's a trainer so what happened what did he say after you said that i bet he felt like a rifle well he went red and he didn't get the job either <laughs> so after your time at time then you went on to to work within the no television wasn't it no i i, I they ran side by side i um i applied for a job that became available on itv in 1980 because racing was on, on itv and bbc in those days um and there was an audition for it and we 12 of us were shortlisted out of a, a, a list of 60 and we were told to go to sandown in december for the friday of the two-day december meeting and the list included myself derek thompson graham rock who i mentioned to you earlier who worked for went on to work for the sporting chronicle and the racing post but used to work at timeform guy called Tim Richards, who's very well known, worked in racing for a long time. He's retired now. Pauline Hall, um, who worked, who got a lot of practical experience with horses. Um, Tony O'Hare, who still works in Ireland in racing. So we all went down and um, we had to do a piece to camera, um, you know, introduce the racing. And um, those who wanted to be commentators, which wasn't me, I, I, I was interested in being a pundit. Uh, had to do a, a spoof commentary. It was a it was a real baptism of fire, Hannah, because it was snowing. Oh, so we're we're we're, we're sitting outside doing these dreadful pieces to camera because only Derek was any good, uh, and the the snow was coming down. And eventually, it was all abandoned, and we did it again at Doncaster two weeks later. But to cut a long story short, Derek won that contest, if you like. He got the job, but because and because Bruff Scott and John Oaksey. Um, Lord Oaksey, uh, both wrote from um, big national newspapers, the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Times. Sometimes if ITV were at a little meeting on a Saturday, they had to write copy about what was happening on the big meeting for Sunday. And the papers didn't like that, say, John Oaksey and Bruff were at Hereford and they were writing about Ascot when half of Britain that was interested in racing could see that they weren't there. So I got a job for eight days a year, Derek got the main overall job uh, as a backup for them. And for that's what I did for four years. I did those eight days and it sort of grew from there. So you were doing them alongside each other? That Eventually, yeah. And then, then racing moved on to Channel 4 where it remained until um, 20, the end of 2016. So 1984, it moved on to Channel 4 and it was there for the next 32 years. Mm -hmm. And I worked there all that time, yeah. And then now you do things within the, the BHS? I was the director of BHB, as it was oh. first, and then BHA, uh, 2004 to 2010, while I was you know, still at Timeform, um, or largely still at Timeform. I left Timeform in 2009, um, and I've worked freelance since then. I work um, uh, 
you know, now and again for Sky Racing on some of their bigger meetings. I'm lucky enough to do that. Um, I'm a director at Newbury. Uh, and I still do a little bit for Timeform, believe it or not. When they're short of paddock people, I'm quite happy to send in some notes of how the horses look. Yeah. So you're still quite busy doing all sorts of things. And what would your favourite, what's your favourite job been, would you say, from the past? Oh, looking at the horses. I mean, you're very lucky to work in television because you, by and large, most TV crews, and I mean, that, that encompasses everybody um, from, you know, a floor manager, director, the cameraman, the soundman. You know, we were like a big family. That was lovely to be part of that for so long. And a lot of those people are still my friends. Um, and the thing about television is everybody's important. You know, you might think, oh, I'm on camera. I'm the most important. Rubbish. You cannot do a good TV show without everybody. Uh, absolutely everybody has a role to play. Otherwise, it doesn't run smoothly. And that's what you're aiming for. You're aiming at smooth, seamless broadcasting. But what do I really like to do? Uh, uh, ultimately, horses are what motivate me or, or what inspire me. I mean, I went to Ripon on Saturday because there was a press place available. It, it was far from the best Ripon card ever because there were only 30 plus horses, but it was fresh air. There was there were seven two year olds to look at, so there was something worth going for, and you always learn something. You uh, own and breed horses now, don't you? As well, I, I haven't got anything in training at the minute, but I yeah, I've had a, I've had a lot of horses. Um, I'd have been retired in um, in a Caribbean island now if I hadn't had any horses. But anybody that's owned horses, Hannah, doesn't have a lot of money, or they don't have as much money as they otherwise would have done, because <laughs> um, it's a very expensive hobby, but it's it, it it's great fun. Um, I mean, um, with a guy called Reg Griffin, who died in 2008, I bred quite a lot of horses. And one of them was a very good one called Decorated Hero, who was part of Frankie de Torre's Magnificent Seven at, at Ascot. Um, and he won 14 races, including it was three or four Group Twos. So, and he finished third in the Breeders' Cup Mile. And I remember thinking, good Lord, I own the dam of that. And that horse has just finished third in the Breeders' Cup Mile. So that that's the interest you get with horses even if you've sold them um, or you don't own them anymore if they're out of your mare you follow them what was your involvement with the breeding were you there on a lot of the time looking at what's going on and the bill payer hannah <laughs> the bill payer paid all the bills um no um the mares were um kept in ireland with a very good friend of reggie's um the, the collins family um Reg knew it's Michael that runs it now, Michael Collins that runs it, but his father, Dick Collins, used to know Reg um, from years ago. So that they had um, they had a friendship going back a long way. So they went there. Um, yeah, we go over three or four times a year and pay the bills on time and then decide to keep them um, or sell them. Mm -hmm. um, I never wanted to sell anything. I always wanted to race it, but you know, it's just so expensive. Do you ride now at all? I haven't, I haven't sat on a horse to ride since 1984. Oh, wow. There, there is, well, you, apart from the fact that you, you're very unlikely to get into a stable, um, there's nothing worse than an amateur that can't really ride. You know, tur turning up to ride a horse once a week and the trainer goes, oh, how lovely to see you, thinking, what the hell can I put, put this sack of spuds on? Um, and somebody, you know, has to be a quiet horse. Somebody has to watch it. Not that there aren't, don't get me wrong. There are lots of good amateurs that go in and do it. But somebody like me that wasn't fit. And I was sort of riding now and again after I'd had that pre-apprentice trial, you know, livery horses and things like that. You're no help to a yard or a trainer. <laughs> so have you got any uh, retired horses that you own now just as pets? 
No, no. Um, what I've what I've always done from long before, and I don't just mean me. A lot of people have done it. Uh, there's a fashionable, not fashionable. There's a very necessary thing called the retraining of racehorses. Always try and find them a good home. Always, always, always. It doesn't always work out. Sadly, you know, you give horses away um, in, in in good faith. Uh, most people do what they say they'll do with them, but un unfortunately, there are one or two that don't. We have a lot of them here because I'm, I'm living on a yard and we have a lot of them here and they're turned into horse ball horses. And, how, and, and are the majority of them good? Yeah, they are. There's, a, there's one here now. It went to polo after, but it was too fast for polo, would you believe? Unstoppable. So she's here now, but she's lovely. And, you know, with mares, they can be a bit temperamental, but she's very nice. She's very willing. We'll see what she's like when she gets to six. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't mean this in any critical way of anyone that does this work. Uh, you know, I am slightly wary about when they go back for a parade, which is obviously necessary to make awareness and um, to try and raise more money because there's never enough money for this, this type of thing, despite the fact that every owner in Britain through collection from uh, Weatherby's, it, you know, it's part of an owner's contract that you make a small contribution to the retraining of racehorses. But sometimes you get a horse, it's, it's been brilliant since you've rehomed it's been rehomed and it's learned to relax and switch off it gets back to the race course and it hears the tannoy and it's suddenly it's a little bit hyper so um yeah i always have my heart in my mouth a bit but no they do a lot of good work and it uh, you know the horses deserve as good a home as possible uh, and richard fahi in particular not exclusively I, I had quite a few horses with richard he's a wizard at finding homes for them he seems to know quite a lot of people who will uh, who will rehome them where are you, um, where are your horses based or where were they based? Were they all in Ireland, did you say? No, no, the, the, the breeding horses were in Ireland, at Lysia Stud on the Curra. That was through a friendship and a long friendship with, with the Collins family. But uh, no, principally I've had horses, not exclusively in the North, but largely in the North. Um, John Joe O'Neill is a very good friend of mine. And um, I had jumpers with him when he was up at Ivy House. Uh, in, in in Cumbria and he moved down I think it was around 99 2000 to, to Jack Dawes Castle um, JP's place uh, and obviously the, the, the handful I've had since then have been down there but mainly they've been with Mark Johnson, Tim Easterby, um, Richard Fahey uh, and I've had a lot of fun. Oh well, that's the main thing, fun. <laughs> fun, fun and a living, a, a lucky passage through life. So what do you do then um, besides racing, hobby-wise? Do you do anything else like golf or...? Well, as John Frankham said, the, the trouble with, with Jim is he's not just boring, he's amazingly boring. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, I do a bit. I, I play a bit of bad golf um, and I like music. Um, I go to quite... A, obviously not the last year, but I've, I, the last four or five years, I, I've gone to a lot of live music concerts. I don't like big venues, yeah. but you, you can see a lot of good um, people at small venues these days. And I, if you're in racing and you still do what I, you know, lucky enough to do what I do on Sky, you've got to follow it, Hannah. You can, it's like it's like me saying I'm a football scout, but I don't bother watching matches anymore. You know, I can see a good player from just by... you. If you're a pundit in racing, in the role that I'm used, and there are other people using that role as well in the same way, you've got to go... You've got to keep on the form. You've got to keep on the pedigrees. So you can't you can't be in racing even in a lesser role that I've got now and not do the work. If you're not going to do the work, you shouldn't have the job.
But thank you so much, honestly. This has been very beneficial. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. Good luck, and I'll send you that email. Yes, thank you so much. All right, we'll speak soon. Bye. Bye. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.